Hello, and welcome to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I am your host, Mr. Miller. This podcast will cover a number of topics that happened on this date in history. Please visit the podcast webpage at thishappentoday.buzzsprout.com. There you can download the notes page, which will help you organize the information, as well as develop your own ideas on how these events change the world around us. If you're interested in hearing more, please consider subscribing so you will not miss out on what happens tomorrow in history. Today is May 24th. In April of 1844, Samuel Morse set up a small laboratory in the first floor committee room in the Senate wing of the Capitol across from the old Supreme Court chamber. On May 24, 1844, after weeks of testing, Morse gathered a small group, reportedly in the Supreme Court chamber, but more likely in the committee room, to send the first message all the way to Baltimore. Morse tapped out the message suggested to him by Ellsworth's daughter Annie, What hath God wrought? Moments later, an identical message was returned from Morse's partner, Alfred Vail, in Baltimore. The experiment was a success. Although the May 24 test was not a public event, Samuel Morse and Vail had been building public interest in the device for weeks. Press attention peaked days later when Vail telegraphed to the Capitol with the rapidity of lightning, news of the Democratic National Convention in Baltimore, and the nomination of James K. Polk as candidate for president. President pro tempore, William Magnum, recounted that a crowd of possibly a thousand eagerly waiting convention news outside the west front of the Capitol cheered loudly upon receipt of the news. Senators were among the first to appreciate the value of the telegraph. It is one of the marvelous results of science, commented Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri, putting people who are miles apart in an instant communication with the accuracy of face-to-face conversation. A telegraph office was installed in the Senate Press Gallery later that year, and regular reports of Senate action soon reached the most distant communities in an instant. The post office assumed control of the Washington-Baltimore telegraph line in October, and it opened it to the public on a, free, on a fee basis. But Congress declined to fund the line's extension or to purchase Morse's patents as he had hoped. The tenacious Morse instead secured private investment and licensing, and by 1850, more than 10,000 miles of telegraph wire stretched across the nation. And in 1883, after 14 years, the Brooklyn Bridge over the East River opened, connecting the great cities of New York and Brooklyn for the first time in history. Thousands of residents of Brooklyn and Manhattan turned out to witness the dedication ceremony, which was presided over by President Chester A. Arthur and New York Governor Grover Cleveland. Designed by the late John A. Roebling, the Brooklyn Bridge was the largest suspension bridge ever built to that date. John Roebling, born in Germany in 1806, was a great pioneer in the design of steel suspension bridges. He studied industrial engineering in Berlin and at the age of 25 immigrated to western Pennsylvania where he attempted, unsuccessfully, to make his living as a farmer. He later moved to the state capital in Harrisburg where he found work as a civil engineer. He promoted the use of wire cable and established a successful wire cable factory. Meanwhile, he earned a reputation as a designer of suspension bridges, which at the time were widely used but known to fail under strong winds or heavy loads. Roebling is credited with a major breakthrough in suspension bridge technology, a web truss added to either side of the bridge roadway that greatly stabilized the structure. Using this model, Roebling successfully bridged the Niagara Gorge at Niagara Falls, New York, and the Ohio River at Cincinnati, Ohio. On the basis of these achievements, New York State accepted Roebling's design for a bridge connecting Brooklyn and Manhattan with a span of 1,595 feet and appointed him chief engineer. It was to be the world's first steel suspension bridge. Just before construction began in 1869, 
Roebling was fatally injured while taking a few finest compo- final compass readings across the East River. A boat smashed the toes on his one foot, and three weeks later he died of tetanus. He was the first of more than two dozen people who would die building his bridge. His 32-year-old son, Washington Roebling, took over as chief engineer. Roebling had worked with his father on several bridges and had helped design the Brooklyn Bridge. The two granite foundations for the Brooklyn Bridge were built in timber caissons or watertight chambers sunk to the depths of 44 feet on the Brooklyn side and 78 feet on the New York side. Compressed air pressurized the caissons, allowing underwater construction. At the time, little was known of the risks of working under such conditions, and more than 100 workers suffered from cases of compression sickness. Compression sickness, or the bends, is caused by the appearance of nitrogen bubbles in the bloodstream that result from rapid decompression. Several died, and Washington Roebling himself became bedridden from the condition in 1872. Other workers died as a result of more conventional construction accidents, such as collapses and a fire. Roebling continued to direct construction operations from his home, and his wife Emily carried his instructions to the workers. In 1877, Washington and Emily moved into a home with a view of the bridge. Roebling's health gradually improved, but he remained partially paralyzed for the rest of his life. On May 24, 1883, Emily Roebling was given the first ride over the completed bridge with a rooster, a symbol of victory, in her lap. With 24 hours, an estimated 250,000 people walked across the Brooklyn Bridge using a broad promenade above the roadway that John Roebling designed solely for the enjoyment of pedestrians. The Brooklyn Bridge, with its unprecedented length and two stately towers, was dubbed the eighth wonder of the world. The connection it provided between the massive population centers of Brooklyn and Manhattan changed the course of New York City forever. In 1898, the city of Brooklyn formally merged with the New York City, Staten Island, and a few farm towns forming Greater New York. And on the night of May 24, 1856, the radical abolitionist John Brown, five of his sons, and three other associates murdered five pro-slavery men at three different cabins along the banks of the Pottawatomie Creek near present-day Lane, Kansas. Brown had been enraged by both the sacking in the anti-slavery town of Lawrence several days before and the vicious attack on Charles Sumner of the floor of the U.S. Senate in which Representative Preston Brooks of South Carolina relentlessly beat Sumner with a cane. The killings at Pottawatomie Creek marked the beginning of the bloodletting of the bleeding Kansas period as both sides of the slavery issue embarked on a campaign of terror, intimidation, and armed conflict that lasted throughout the summer. Three days prior to the massacre, on May 21st, Brown and the Pottawatomie Company, an informal militia group, marched toward Lawrence to protect the town from pro-slavery men intent on its destruction. After joining with a similar company of anti-slavery town of Osawatomie, the men traveled north until they received word that they were too late to prevent the attack on the town, which resulted in the destruction of the Free State Hotel and the offices of Free State newspapers, as well as the looting of many homes and businesses. While camped near Palmyra, Brown resolved to take his revenge on his pro-slavery neighbors and enlisted the help of an associate named James Townsley to carry him, his sons Frederick, Oliver, Owen, Salmon, Salmon, and Watson, as well as his son-in-law, Henry Thompson, back towards Pottawatomie Creek, while a sympathetic Theodore Weiner followed on horseback. After crossing Mosquito Creek, the men camped for the night of May 23rd and most of the following day. They did not, however, disappear from the bleeding Kansas scene. News of the attacks inflamed the territory as both pro- and anti-slavery families fled for their lives. The irregular warfare extended beyond political motivations and became personal and mercilessly brutal. Men on both sides continued to organize into armed groups and began patrolling the area in search of their enemies, resulting in engagements such as the Battle of Blackjack, where Brown took a number of pro-slavery men prisoner, and the Battle of Osawatomie, in which Brown and his men were unable to protect the anti-slavery town from being looted and burned by border ruffians and Brown's son Frederick was killed. 
By the fall, the new territorial governor, John Geary, had largely restored order in the territory, although violence flared up regularly until 1858 and periodically after that. The Pottawatomie Massacre and the other attacks that marked the bleeding Kansas are considered by many historians to have been the opening shots of the Civil War. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com Morse's first telegram at senate.gov, the Brooklyn Bridge at history.com, and the Pottawatomie Massacre at civilwaronthewesternborder.org. The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana, created by Kevin McLeod on incompetech.com. If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.